Welcome to The New Exchange, a podcast series that explores how everyone has a story to tell. My name is Ken Grandpierre, and this is another episode featuring a guest who inspired this very series. Jarlaf Regan is a stand-up comedian from Ireland who approaches comedy with an earnest cadence that leaves you feeling like you're hanging with your best friend who is telling you jokes over at a bar. Along with having a successful stand-up career, Jar is also the creator and host of an award-winning podcast called An Irishman Abroad. It's a series that highlights Irish people and people of Irish descent with an emphasis on gaining insight on the lives of people doing extraordinary things, including both the successes and the failures. That podcast is a major favorite of mine and has played a crucial role in inspiring how I've approached the new exchange. Jar has a sincerity about him that rings with an honesty that I've always marveled at, especially in how well he could put a guest at ease, which is also a fixture of his live shows. The intersection between the podcast and his comedy is the way Jar takes everyday nuances of Irish life and shows how they have a broader context, even outside of that fine country. In terms of what we chat about on today's podcast, it's largely exploring that intersection, along with the things that compel him to share these stories. Before we jump into it, I want to recommend that you check out his hilarious comedy special, Notions 11, which you can find streaming in full over on YouTube. Also, be sure to check out his Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com irishmanabroad. Joining the Patreon grants you access to the numerous spin-off series that Jar has started, including Running Abroad, Irishman in America, and Honey, You're Ruining Our Kids. Remember to subscribe to my podcast on the app that you're listening to this on, and to also rate and leave a review over on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings help us independent creatives in a big way, so if you like what you hear, do let me know about it. This is The New Exchange with Jarla Freegan. Enjoy. It's lovely to finally getting the chance to be chatting with you, Jar. Um, I tend to ask musicians this, but when I knew I was going to talk to you, I got very keen knowing I was going to get to ask you this. But tell me about the time that comedy entered your life. Oh, man, what a great question. Comedy in the sense of what stand-up is today didn't enter my life until, believe it or not, like university. I really didn't see it as a thing. I obviously enjoyed it in like the way you would see, like you'd pass a farm (laughs) on on the highway and you'd go, oh, wow, look at that in there or but you never really considered it as a a thing or a concept that in Ireland it was so fresh and new. It only had its first comedy club in Ireland in 1992. So it was so, so fresh as a thing. The idea that you would pursue it as a career or a creative path was just otherworldly so i only kind of bumped into it when it came to my university when it was booked into theaters there and uh that's when i was open it opened my eyes that you could do this but comedy in irish life and humor in the broader sense was just part of our lives growing up because you know everyone in ireland is expected to be funny you if you're not funny you're considered no crack and that is <laughs> like a, that's a real death sentence that guy is no crack is such 
a negative thing to say about somebody that like it's reason why they wouldn't get hired guy <laughs> <laughs> a guy is no crack we can't have him around the office there, you're, there's an expectation of crack and people who have listened to this and have visited ireland will know what i mean by this and that it seems like every interaction you have with someone there's some level of humor to it and when people are new to the country that's very hard for them to get used to and when you leave ireland it's equally hard to get used to the idea that a straight-faced english person doesn't have the foggiest idea what you're doing when you're trying to get a laugh out of them in a in a newspaper shop what 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 are you talking about I mean, it, I'm not saying all English people are like that because there's loads of fun to be had here. But uh, I think the crack and the idea of comedy, as I understand it to be, are two very different things. No, that is definitely true. And, you know, I love how you added that at the tail end there. I started going to Ireland regularly when I was um, 19. I'm, 30, I'm 32 now. And it's something that, like, I, I, I took to it right away because I had Irish friends growing up and in, like, in school and stuff like that. And then when I started going back to New York quite regularly in between, it was something that I would miss because uh, it's funny to hear an Irish person point this out. But, yeah, it does feel like everyone's a comedian in a way, but in a positive way. Like, it, it feels very authentic. Yeah, but there is that thing, like, when everyone's a comedian and you're the one on stage you have to uh you're aware that many of the people are looking at you going i that could just as easily be me uh, <laughs> whereas in the uk i feel like there's a much more reverence for the person who's on the stage they're like i, I have no idea how somebody does it and they'll ask you they'll say that to you all that i don't know how you do it uh whereas irish people are so used to uh recounting the tales of their life uh whether it's being in a fender bender on the way to drinks or just telling their story storytelling and the shanaki is what they were called in the old days in real old ireland there was a person who had stories <clears throat> it's kind of the original irish stand-up was a person who would travel from town to town with great stories and people literally just gathered around and listened to this dude spin a yarn and uh, i feel like that's just so part of our heritage and culture that in so many ways, the comedians that we know as great Irish comics now are continuing that uh, tradition. You know, like I, I, this popped into my head as you were talking. I feel like one of the best things I've heard ever said about Ireland was uh, Liam Cunningham, the actor, was in an interview with uh, Tommy Tiernan. And he was talking about why he prefers to live in uh, Dublin as opposed to anywhere else. And he was saying that like he had an experience where he was out like uh, on a night out. And so, and I, a random Irish person said to him, like, hey, are you Liam Cunningham? And he said, yes, I am. And then the person responded with, yeah, so what? <laughs> it's like... <laughs> yeah, well, I guess that's a double-edged sword as well. I love that, I love that he loves that. But there's, there's a certain element of um, not giving people the satisfaction that I'm not a huge fan of. <laughs> like, that thing that happened there is so common because people don't want you getting above your station or getting what they call notions. I mean, my last stand-up special was called Notions 11. And, uh, you know, central to it is that idea that delusions of grandeur, uh, that Irish people are f scared stiff they're going to get those. Uh, and I've found English audiences much more likely to come up to you afterwards and go, that was, that was absolutely smashing. Whereas Irish people are a bit more reluctant to do that <laughs> in case... <laughs> In case you actually think you're good. 
<laughs> but but isn't that so? But that's just, I've had Liam Cunningham on my podcast, and uh, yeah, he tells stories like that so well, and he has such a grow for that Irish sensibility, which does kind of you know keep your feet on the ground kind of thing. Yeah, he's class, and uh, I'm glad you brought up the podcast. We're gonna talk more about comedy later on, but before we do, um, I became aware of you because of the Irishman Abroad podcast. Uh, my favorite thing about the series is how it highlights how uniquely talented people from Ireland are. And I always love to talk about that whenever I'm here in the States or in other countries that like the, just the breadth of talent, the way it's, it's like you pointed out, how it ties to like a real lived experience is something I found, I have found to be so unique to Ireland. And as an outsider myself, I think it's something that's always struck me with your country. But do you remember how you became aware of this, that there was this just, crazy amount of talent across ireland yeah i think it's when you go away <laughs> when you go away and you realize holy moly <laughs> we're this tiny country that is uh punching way above its weight all across the world in all of these fields and it's 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 really unique and extraordinary there's no uh country quite like it and i think you aren't aware of how talented everybody seems to be because that's all you know growing up is that everybody can do stuff <laughs> um, there, then you go away and it's like oh that's not the case in all other countries i think that it comes back to what i started to say initially is just this expectation of well what do you do you know what is it you, what what is the string to your bow and that you have to kind of develop a talent in ireland uh, of some sort, a speciality or some level of skill or proficiency at something so that you have an identity, so that you're not just some random guy or girl. Um, but the talent thing is is funny because the the people, it's only when people, so a lot of the time with talented Irish people, it's only when they go away that they're appreciated, precisely because of what I just said, that sometimes in a sea of talented fish, they're, they don't stand out, but they're, what they do can be appreciated uh, in another context. And sometimes it's also the, the gaze of others that liberates Irish people when they go abroad. That's why they tend to flourish, because they don't feel like they're being watched. It is an exceptionally small country, Ken, in case people don't know. It's so small that I certainly never felt like I could just get on with my creative work out of sight of people. There's a great Frank Skinner joke, and I guess the uh, UK is similar enough to this, in that Frank Skinner said that, uh, told this joke in his autobiography, it's a kind of a well-worn comedian's joke that kind of perfectly captures how, <laughs> how the business is, but also how watched you can be. Uh, he said the two comedians bump into each other in Leicester Square and one goes, hey, where have you been? I haven't seen you in ages. And the other goes, oh, I moved to New York. Did you not hear about that? And he goes, no, I didn't hear about that. So I moved to New York about six months ago. And on my first night, I was up in Caroline's and I asked, could I get on? And they said, there's actually a dropout. Why don't you jump up? Uh, they didn't know me. So I jumped up. And he was like, oh, my God, I didn't hear about this. That's fantastic. What happened? And he goes, well, actually, the booker for The Late Show was in and... Uh, I got booked for the late show. He goes, oh my God, I didn't hear about this. This is crazy. He's like, yeah, so Jim Carrey was on the late show when I went on. And at the time he was filming Mr. Popper's Penguins. And he liked my set. 
and said I could be in the movie. I was like, uh, and the guy's like, oh my God, I didn't hear about this. This is nuts. Like, how am I not hearing about this? He goes, yeah, well, I'm back here now and I'm uh, actually working out material for the tour that I'm going to do off the back of the movie. I was in Camden last night and I actually died on my arse. And the guy goes, yeah, I heard about that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there's so much in one joke, <laughs> there right? There really is. It's just, there's just so much happening there. And I'm sure that that isn't just exclusive to Ireland or the UK. I'm sure there's people in Brooklyn right now listening to this who are like, yeah, I know what that feels like. Oh. Um, but I, yeah, that's comedy. And it's also coming from a small country too, or small community. Jim Gaffigan said you're never a, you're uh. never a star in your hometown. And that, that I, I, I felt that. I feel that. And it's... Uh, it's part of that feet on the ground thing, but it's also just people know you, you know, people know you. And the talent that Irish people have, you know, Ken, it is a hard one. It's a great one to identify, but it is a hard one to put your finger on, isn't it? It's like, why is this? And how did this come to be? And why does it continue to be the case? There has to be a certain amount of guilt within it. As I certainly felt that like a lot of the work that I did and a lot of people that I know work really hard this talent is one thing right but you know the old adage hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard Irish people do work their boats off and some of that is guilt there's a, a fear that they'd be called lazy in the past it was a fear of god but they definitely have an insatiable appetite for work and that coupled with the talent is probably the reason why we see so much of it yeah, you know, it's really interesting to hear you say that at the tail end there, because my entryway um, through just media in general was music. And um, it's come up before on the series, but it's been quite a while. So I guess it's worth bringing up. But my entryway into music was working with Irish acts. Uh, my favorite band of all time is Ash. And uh, I got into them when I was a teenager. They had me street teaming when I was like in uni. And then um, I started going to Ireland quite regularly. And at the time in which I did that, I was quite disillusioned with New York because I came for uni here in New York. And it was a thing where uh, I was hoping to find a bit of like a creative community and very much a sense of like, you know, I guess, widespread acceptance from just having similar um, interests as people. And I didn't find that. New York at the time, this is like 2008 or 9, is, was very competitive overtly, especially if you were a part of like the creative field. And I think it was just like perfect timing when I started going to Ireland regularly and seeing how it was the opposite, but in a way that ran in tandem where going to what you were saying, like I would go to Dublin and I would go to Belfast and, you know, to like uh, Galway and different parts of the, just the island and see people who had this crazy amount of talent, but never be lazy and never, at least overtly never viewed the person next to them as someone they had to like eat for dinner or something. And like, it felt like witnessing that showed me it was possible, having that sense of uh, solidarity while also working very hard. Mm, yeah, God is uh, really well put. As I remember, um, you know, uh, Sarah Silverman's kind of crew out there in uh, L.A. and in her friends in New York uh, that I remember her boyfriend at one time pointing out that they didn't resemble what he knew of comedians because what you were describing there, Ken, is very true, the music industry, but comedy is like the 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 New York 2008, 2009 in many ways. And it's kind of the thing that nobody likes to talk about because there's so few spots for comics that there's 
there really is this cutthroat competitiveness to it um a lot of the time it's not true all the time but a lot of the time it is it, it, i've been through periods where it's it just doesn't feel like anybody's your friend and it's not it's not conducive to creativity is it so you're a big ash guy obviously tim wheeler lived in brooklyn for a time do you know tim i do know tim very well it, it's funny because right before we hit the recorder we're talking about the pandemic uh he, he's moved back to London um, in the last couple of months or so. But what's funny is that I remember right before he moved, well, at the top of the pandemic back in 2020, there was meant to be some big party. I can't remember what it was in celebration of, but obviously the party got canceled. And then fast forward two years later, I was in Belfast last November and I bumped into Tim. And I was like, oh shit, like what happened to that party? He's like, oh, I moved to London. I was like, oh shit. It's just, it's a testament to how the last two years just changed so many things in people's lives. Like. Oh, man, remember that. Remember, like, when you think about all the things that got cancelled, never to be seen again. Like, I had a full tour cancelled. And you can't be like, woe is me, my tour, my special, and my Edinburgh Fringe. But, like, it was such a fork in the road, isn't it? Because I do not know who I'd be if it had just carried on that direction. Because it changed my life completely. It changed my whole attitudes and the world and my family completely. Uh, it is bizarre, isn't it? Just, just how much it nipped certain things in the bud. Wow. I, you know, I use, I get, once in a while I get to do this because this is only audio. Once in a while I get to describe visuals. And right now my eyes just widened quite intensely hearing you say that because I've been in the context of my own life dealing with that realization that life is in a different direction just by virtue of going through that and, you know, last two years. And it's been a lot to reconcile with because, you know, this is, pro this is a bit of a divergence, but it's interesting to bring up. I'm sure so many people can relate to it, where if you think back to 2020, at least for me, I find it difficult to recognize that person, but it's also me. And it's a very weird thing that definitely oh definitely i mean i definitely had this period with writing where i couldn't remember what that headspace was like i recorded a special the night before dublin shut down in vicar street filmed it the whole lot and really really put my heart and soul into this being you know that that album that you hang your hat on and after you know a year of no shows i just i couldn't remember what what was my sensibility even like because what, what what was important then was just not important now i feel like i'm coming back to it and my reassurance for you ken would be that it's still you and you're better you're better now that you don't get worse <laughs> You just have to believe that, that you just continue to improve as a creative person. And I just reassure myself with that all the time, that I'm more mature, I'm a better writer, I'm, I'm a clearer thinker, and that all of the uh, negative things that have happened in our lives are, you know, the sum of the parts that make us the people that we are now, and that that's to be embraced rather than kind of shunned. Wow. That, thank you for saying that. That truly means a lot. And it's definitely something that... I mean it. Yeah, I could tell. Yeah, it's definitely something I'm going to aim to carry with me. You know, 
you're referring to Notions 11, um, the special. Um, I'm curious, do you think the experience of just writing and performing that also is influencing how you approach the next one or even just writing, like when you reflect on that experience? Do you know what's crazy, Ken, is I recorded it two years ago, March 14th in Vicker Street, and I didn't know if there was going to be people there. I really was scared stiff of this virus. I was so frightened. My wife's in the... It was a terrifying time. Yeah, sorry to jump in. Yeah, no, I mean, doubly for us because my wife has no immune system. Uh, So she's totally compromised that way. And we were just like, well, we can't not do this. And I remember sticking my head through the curtain to see if there were people there and it was sold out. And I was like, I can't believe these idiots are here. (laughs) 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 They're all going to get the virus. But, uh, you know, it took two years for it to take off. Like, I mean this. I filmed it two years ago and all completely with my own dough. Like, we had offers from different places to do it. But I was like, all the best stuff that I've ever done has been my creation, my idea that I've initiated and executed without anyone telling me that I can't do that, can't do that, the best stuff. And I find that's true of the best albums, the best sitcoms. The more the person, the creator's in charge of it, the better it is, and usually the prouder they are of it. So I built, created, enlisted, employed all of the talented people I knew in my life that could help create this thing. It was my baby, and I put it out, and it felt like dropping a pebble in the ocean it barely made a ripple like it just felt like it vanished because so much content was out there so many people were preoccupied and then this month ken (laughs) it's just started to take off people have started watching it it's the strangest thing. I have no... I mean, I'm one I, of them. <laughs> well, I have no idea what happened. Like, I have no idea. It's like the the YouTube algorithm just suddenly decided, yes, now. Now is the time. And I'm getting messages from all over the world. And my subscribers are going through the roof. And I'm like, it's it's exactly what I made two years ago. But suddenly... I don't know, I shouldn't hang my validation on or my self-worth on the validation of other people. But there was a part of me that was like, is, was it trash? Is that why nobody cares about it? But now suddenly you're just like, no, no, there were no eyes on it. And the process of making it was so much of a learning curve. But like, it's, it's like anyone trying to break a glass ceiling or a band trying to break you know they're trying to just get on that stage where the people get to see them and you know youtube has just changed comedy for everyone and it's in the process of changing my life right now like right now it's happening as we speak like i'm watching alerts come in on my phone i'm just like what the fuck is going on and you know previously i spent 10 years going to the edinburgh festival writing show after show, hoping that maybe that's how you do it. But YouTube just democratized everything. And particularly for comedians, it's like you can make something great. And in the space of a day, 
more people will see it than would have ever seen your Edinburgh show for a month. And who knows, could get sent that link. It's just a, it's incredibly empowering, nearly overwhelming side of things because it's this beast. Like the entertainment business is a beast and sometimes you can feel like an ant underneath its foot. And then there, there's this kind of David and Goliath thing to YouTube where it's like, no, you can throw the stone the right way and you can hit it right in the eye and it will fall <laughs> for you. I'm not saying that's happening for me right now, but we do know of those comedians and those acts who have just hit it right at the right time and the momentum created continues and gathers pace. Yeah, and there's nothing you could do to quantify that or like there's nothing you could do to say do X, Y, Z and this would happen. But in relation to your special, something I will say is that um, even though it's very specific to the Irish experiences, there are multiple instances there that I think are transcendent. And uh, I, I know the, the a cardinal sin is if you explain a joke, so I won't explain the joke. But No, no, go for it. I don't care. I don't think that's a cardinal sin at all. I love comedy analysis, so go for it. Yeah, oh, yeah. you do? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. That, in that case, then I'll bring up a joke that, I've, that's, that, that stuck with me, and I think it will resonate with people regardless of whether or not they love or hate their family. <laughs> but what you say about... Uh, prince harry and uh, Meghan markle like you have a bit in the beginning where you talk about like how they told their family to fuck off and you want you really want the room to examine how monumental that is now in the co the context of like a room of irish people that's like sacrilege that would never happen tell your family to fuck off but i think a lot of people in different cultures can relate because you keep returning back to it and you're like wait a minute these two people decided to go live a life they wanted to without the pressures of their family, like, wait a minute, what? And it's like, I think a lot of people, especially after going through the pandemic lockdowns, especially people who had to, like, deal with family things, could absolutely relate to that. Oh, man, well, thanks for bringing it up. It's one of my favorite jokes, and it is, like you say, I, I really <laughs> do always try and, you know, begin with the specific and go to the general, because, you know, that's what I think you know c comedy is is finding the similarities between things that are different and the differences between things that are similar and finding the that the more universal the experience for us all begins with the specificity of your life so if you're bill burr talking about your pit bull uh, that's scaring everybody in the street <laughs> and uh, that's not an experience everyone has but People know the emotion of having a thing that nobody else approves of and that people judge you for. And family is, to me, the center of all of my comedy because it is, again, it's such a pervasive thing. It's such a, a like a smothering thing. It's, you know, the best and worst of everything. And I won't lie, I've had, you know, big, big, big issues with my family, but nothing in the realm of what other people have dealt with in terms of their family. Like, I'm so blessed compared to what other people have gone through. But they have an expectation. doesn't matter who your family are. They have things they expect of you. And <laughs> the idea... You tell them 
to to shove it. <laughs> I'm going to live in Canada or wherever. I'm gonna live in LA. It's just <laughs> like it, it's. Uh, it, I found that mind blowing because of how how dead I'd be if I suggested it. And that was always the starting point for this was just the. I find the whole royal family having lived here for ten years is just among the most bizarre institutions and entities in the world today because they are just people they're just they have a christmas dinner they open presents and that's all in that bit is that like they had to sit down across from their weird randy uncle and uh (laughs) look at him and go this guy's best friend is Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> You're like, what is going on here? How is you've, we've all been at a dinner table with our family where somebody has said or done something, and you've looked around and thought, is nobody gonna say anything? Yes. <laughs> that has to be Harry and Meghan, and that was yeah, that was the center of all all of that stuff. And what's so funny was, man, it was literally happening that week that I was recording it. So that is one of the final bits of that special that went in. And I always believed this, and I'm sure it's the same in music too, that the newer the song, the newer the bit, the more enthusiasm you have for it. And audiences sense they have a weird radar for sincerity. So when I uh, do that bit with the kind of passion of somebody who's just thought of it, uh, it was actually Tommy Tiernan who you mentioned earlier who gave me that advice years ago. He said, you have to forget all your material before you go on stage and then say it all as if you're just remembering it. And that was his trick for finding that passion in the bit. And I don't think I'm, I, 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 I don't know why that bit works, but it, it, it has to have something to do with everyone being able to relate to a family that wants more of you than you're willing to give. Do you know what's so striking about what you just said in relation to that Tommy Tiernan bit is uh, quite recently I had to do a talk about podcasting, about like uh, just the technical aspects of it in terms of like the human nature. And that was something I kind of echoed in regards to how to approach a very good talk where arguably you want to go in overprepared, but at the start of the talk, you should be comfortable with throwing all that out in the context of like getting um, a sense of humanity from the person you're talking to. It's interesting to hear that in the context of comedy because, yeah, it just shows how um, there's a sentiment there that resounds into a lot of different areas. Yeah, I mean, that, that really is it, isn't it? That uh, when I'm doing my podcast, I have the exact same approach of over-prepare, uh, but never look at the notes. It's kind of the way uh, I, I look at it. As it's like comedy and a podcast interviewing, I regard as really close together because both are the art of listening much more than they are the art of talking or communicating yourself. You're responding to what's happening in the moment. And if you're not present, then you miss it. And, you know, the, the connection is lost. I always go back to that Ramdas quote. The quieter you become, the more you hear. I'll write that on the inside of every notebook I have. And you know, what's really amazing about you saying that, and it, I'm kind of being reminded in my head about how you said um, recognizing the talent of Ireland after you left, um, well, the times you were away. 
I have to say that something that's been a constant for me in relation to your podcast has been over the years talking to my Irish friends about it and how for a lot of them, usually expats or people who are traveling, they will mention a sense of gratitude towards the podcast in relation to that and helping them view the country in a different way. And I wonder if, is that something you've heard from other people, other Irish people before? Um, I don't know what you mean by a different way. Like I'd have to talk to those people that you're, you're talking about, but I, uh, what do you mean by that? Not, uh, that's a good question. So I guess it, I want to be careful I use this word because I know it could be associated mostly with America in terms of like a specific framing, but I would say a sense of pride, not pride that is like um, insidious of any nature, but like hmm. I think it's a situation where they leave Ireland, they reflect on some of the people there, some of the talent there, and then they find themselves thinking like, oh, my country is something to be proud of as opposed to just being there and going through the day to day. I guess I was wondering. if Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was just curious if you if, has anyone ever echoed that to you, like a, a fellow Irish person, in relation to your podcast? You know what I get a lot is um, because we started the show, and I was one of the first, believe it or not, one of the first Irish podcasts, and I was of the opinion that if we could just hit six home runs in a row, that everybody would listen from that point forward. So we tried to, you know, get the most famous people we could for the first six episodes. And then, obviously, it's harder and harder to get those people, the really, really well-known people. More and more podcasts come online, and the famous people themselves start their own podcast. And what I get from people is that the episodes that they love the most are often with the people they've never heard of. So in, in that way, they, they don't say to me, and now I... I feel pr more pride in Ireland or I'm more aware of these people. But I guess to an extent that is what they're saying because they wouldn't have known that this person existed until I found them and put them on the show. Um, but equally, you know, Ken, there's people that have their pre... What's the word? They, they have a, a fixed idea of who a guest is. And then you bring them on and they'll, you'll have people listening, you know, hate listening to it going, I think this guy's a douche. <laughs> I wonder what this is going to be like. And then over the course of an hour, you realize not, not so bad. Not, not actually, I can actually understand where he or she was coming from with that thing that I decided was trash or that thing that they did that made no sense to me, uh, that there's reason behind all of these things and the hour long space just it's like going for a pint with that person that eventually you can just kind of tease it out and weirdly i i've never had an interview that's ended badly or gone in a way where it's like oh i bet he's never going to talk to that person again even though i have had tense moments but uh i, I do like you say like to get down into it and see what what was the person thinking when they did that thing uh, and in that way hopefully what i get from people and what i do get from people is that they had they not listened to the show they'd have no idea about that part of that person's life wow i i love hearing that and uh you know i, I feel like it echoes a sentiment that i feel where in the context of the podcast that you're on now 
and it kind of was part of the genesis of even starting it was that um a lot of my experience of being with musicians um on tour or backstage is that like i would see that everyday people who work you know air quotes regular jobs would have a very uh innate way to look at these people from on like a plat like you know an elevated form of society and then i would be in these backstage areas and realize that like they're just people so when it came to starting the series it was very much like the the big thing i want people to take away from the talks is that even if you work at an office or a cafe or wherever you could relate to the person who's speaking and that's like a big uh level of importance to me i am curious about you mentioned that you've had experiences where the talks went tense. What, what are those? What have those moments been like for you? I almost hate to ask, but it's once yeah, a word like that is Who wants to hear so about you... the good stuff? You know, who wants to hear about things going well? That's how comedy works. Like, <laughs> we don't want to hear about how great your life is. Uh, we want to hear about you know the craziest moments. Well, I feel like moments like that might challenge you. Um, well, look, there's one in particular that stands out, and that was with Dylan Moran, where. Uh, uh, I thought he was going to walk because I just thought uh, I couldn't get him to answer the questions. He, he just didn't. It was like he didn't want any part of it. And <laughs> I was like, I didn't know what to say because it's like I'd ask him a question and he'd go, why do you even want to know that? And, and I'd go, well, because that's that's what I'm interested in finding out. And in some ways it forced me to actually ask the questions and consider, well, why am I asking that? Is it, is it a le legitimate question? I can also remember Tommy Tiernan saying in the interview I did with him, I have no interest in talking about the past, so don't talk to me about the past. And I said, well, it's going to be a long hour, Tommy. <laughs> <laughs> And he's like, people want to know about what you've done. You know, we're all keen to know what you're going to do next, but we do want to know about what you've done. And, you know, these aren't... Like, I've also had interviews with footballers, like soccer players, as American people would call them, where they have, you know, they've... The shutters down. You know, the shutters are down. That's the only way to describe it. They do not want to play ball at all and they've been burned by the media and they're just like leave me alone <laughs> and you're just like what do we do here you're like the irish expression for this is like playing handball against a hay bale <laughs> uh, nothing is coming back <laughs> and eventually it's like kind of drawing a a wild animal out with like grain in your hand trying to convince them that you're not going to hurt them uh and like i had those interviews where it's like 55 minutes in they chill and you're like okay well this last five minutes we've got to make this count because this is going to be the only juicy stuff everything else was just in all fairness at the end of the day all credit to the manager and the my teammates uh it's tough man because there's no way around those tense ones other than to live in the tension. The only thing I, I've realized that I and you, and you can take solace in is that your listeners have your back. The guest doesn't get that.
your relationship with the listener is stronger than their relationship with your listeners. So when someone comes in and they're not respectful to me or the podcast, I'm always like, well, <laughs> my guys aren't going to like this. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not going to, nobody, no one listening to this every week is going to turn on me. They're, they're going to think, why won't you answer Jar's questions? We've listened to him for hundreds and hundreds of hours. Ask good questions of people, but y- you won't do it. And that is sometimes lovely. I'll be honest with you. The times I've had really tense ones, it's when people get in touch with you and go, what a douchebag. How did you put up with them? <laughs> How did you put well, up with that? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. I have to say, when you started that, it hit me that, because um, I, I, I think I've mentioned to you, I've been a fan of the podcast for your podcast for many years now. And I do distinctly remember that Dylan Moran episode. And I have to say, you handled that beautifully. And it was very, it was very human. Um, it kind of reminded me, I mean, this is definitely a way different context, but are you a familiar fan of the podcast Armchair Expert with Dak Shepard? Yes, yeah, I do. Yeah, there's an episode where he had his wife Krista Bell on, and it, previous to them recording it, they had gone into an argument at like a, a craft store, and the argument bled over into the podcast, and it's honestly both one of the most fascinating slash uncomfortable things to listen to, because it's very human. Like, they, you, you can tell they want to not talk about the argument, but they can't help it. And it's like, yeah, it's just, I, I was reminded of that in relation to this. Like, you guys didn't get into blows or anything, but oh, I thought you handled so that funny. really well. It's so funny that you bring that up because I've just started a podcast with my wife uh, called <laughs> Hon- <laughs> Honey, You're Ruining Our Kid. And it's a parenting podcast where my wife is a kind of behavioral expert. We get sent in anonymous uh, problems that people are having with their kids because nobody wants to tell you how difficult their child is. But the reality of the last two years that we just mentioned is that the people that are worst affected by it are children and they're really struggling. Like they don't even know how to articulate their struggle and they don't know what they like when we say we don't know what we'd be like had that two years not happened. They really don't know. Because in the relative scheme of things, think about the chunk of their life that two years was relative to yours. It's such a significant portion of their existence that they've probably forgotten what they were before that two years. And uh, we're seeing just so many, so many amazing emails and so many amazing parents who are just trying to figure it out. But equally, I got into that thinking what happens if we've had an argument and then we go on air? <laughs> uh, but it hasn't happened yet. But uh, I definitely, what's amazing about my wife is that she will, she has said that my listening face is terrifying. <laughs> she says, when oh. we talk around the house, we're just, you know, shooting the shit, doing our thing, getting something out of the fridge. You're fiddling with that thing over there. But when I'm, on a microphone talking to somebody i don't look away i just hold their eye contact for the whole time <laughs> he said it's fucking it's like a serial killer <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh, you know it's it's uh, i've got to get i've got to find that one i've got to find that dax shepherd interview because that sounds immense 
Oh, it's well worth listening to, and it resolves in an interesting way. I won't spoil it for you, but that is unbelievable about you doing this podcast with your wife. And, like, you know, like, this is, like, a good way to enter into a realm I was quite keen to talk to you with, because, you know, this might be a bit long-winded, but I'll go for it. Fuck it. Uh, I I have a long... I have this long-lasting idea of sorts that being a person who does an out-of-the-ordinary type of job is a beautiful thing for children to witness because you're you're like you mentioned you're also a father and i feel like it's the kind of thing where your kids can look at what you do and realize the accessibility of it i've seen it in the theater world in the music world and tv and film where there'll be kids on set or at a venue and just the fact that they could witness that they understand that it's tangible and i bring this up because of you being a parent i wonder if that's an idea that's ever crossed your mind even just in passing Every day (laughs) is the answer. Every single day. Uh, I think about it all the time. (laughs) That's amazing. And uh, I also think about my own father who left Ireland at 13 years old uh, because he'd fallen in love with horses. And he, you know, just decided I've got to leave and go to where the horses are and uh, went and created his own life with horses. and. I definitely connect my being a stand-up comedian to knowing that you don't have to go the path. You just don't have to do the normal thing. Uh, I'm also conscious, though, of, you know, there's both positive and negative side effects of both things. So with horse racing, and the reason why they call it bloodstock is because it stocks and bonds in blood form (laughs) these animals are traded and sold they increase in value there's uh you know insider trading that goes on and in that way it is motivated by money and sometimes i've found throughout my creative life that i've had to really work hard to disassociate myself from the sense that it's only worthwhile if it's making money, that the creative value of a thing doesn't necessarily correlate to its financial value. And I know that the, in terms of what my son Michael is seeing, is an, a father who's a creator, but is just in the same way as my father was so connected to the financial value of the animal, my son's definitely seeing that in my dad's job, it ha- the audience really holds a lot of power. That sense of, will they get it? Do they get it? Stand-up comedy relies on the idea that, certainly conventional observational stand-up that I do, relies on the idea that we can connect over this observation. It is no use me making observations that nobody else has lived through. We've just talked about this earlier, that I feel like sometimes my son is seeing a little bit too much of, will they like me? <laughs> you know, And uh, I'm really vigilant of that with him at the moment, particularly as he heads into his kind of teenage years. It, you know, that's, that's, that's tough. And I, I recognize that I... I and loads of other comics walk around with this please like me kind of uh, uh, gurning 
in some ways and it's not attractive and it's not good because you've got to stand on your hind legs and be you and do you as best you can and know that that's your authentic self and that's that. Now, I'm, uh, I'm obviously <laughs> forgetting that all these comedians that, that don't give two shits what people think and just go up and do what they do. But on some level, they do care. You know, you can name them. Name, name any comic that you think is much more free of that sense of please like me. And I think I can identify it in them. I think it doesn't matter if it's Chappelle or uh, Ali Wong or Jerry Seinfeld. They want to be liked by rooms of strangers. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating that you brought that up just there, especially at the time of Chappelle. I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine about uh, Dave Chappelle in this specific context, because we're talking about uh, that special, the closure, that obviously was very controversial, but specifically the fallout of it and how he's been since. I I've seen him live since uh, Dave Chappelle. He does like random spots here in New York. And a lot of it, it's the situation where you go into a room and they t they, you put your phone in the pouch so you can't record it. But I would say 80% of his like uh material that he's like shot like workshopping was about the fallout from uh the special and apparently he's done several public appearances since then where that's very much been the aim and i was talking to a friend of mine about this because we, we hold dave Chappelle to a very high esteem and we we're saying like oh my god we're witnessing a man overtly conveying how he wants to be like because if that's not what it was he would have just released that special the closure and never like um refer to it again he would let the work speak for itself but because he keeps needing to respond back to it it's coming from a human place of like he wants people to like him or understand him and it's inch it's fascinating yeah i think the, you have a point you have a point i mean there's there's no doubt about it uh that that's one of the motivating factors i watched the speech that he gave uh, when they were attempting to dedicate this theater to him, um, I saw it too at his old school. And you know, Ken, some of it definitely is please like me, but I do think that's a lot of it is well, if no one is going to take the time to explain what creative freedom looks like, then I will. Yes, uh, I am not a, an apologist for him. But what I always say to my wife is that uh, I don't have to defend a single word of what Dave Chappelle said, but I will fight to the end for his right to say it. Uh, I just believe that he, he was attempting to be edgy in what he did and that it wouldn't matter if it was Irish people were the thing that you are not allowed to talk about. Guess what he'd be talking about? I mean, that's just the, the, the artist he is. And I didn't, the only thing I didn't like in it, I'll be honest with you, about what he's doing at the moment is telling us how good he is and how you won't see the likes of me for generations to come. And maybe that's the Irish in me coming out again because... There's a great Irish phrase that self-praise is no praise. That, that is not your, that is not for you to say, even if it is in the context of everybody saying I'm terrible 
Well, I'll tell you right now, you'll not see the likes of me for generations to come. You don't get to say that or you shouldn't be the one to say that. And I found it, I found it a very tough watch at times. Uh, And yeah, I do connect it to the please like me thing. But I also connect it to the absence of any real discussion of the artistic merit of what he was saying in the closer. Like, I just thought that there was very little debate over whether this was uh, a creative freedom, an act of creative rebellion uh, or just expression. And like I say, I don't have to defend a single word he said uh, because I do believe in punching up, not down. And like, I I just think that comedy should still be respected as this place for this particular type of creative expression but like man comedy is like under attack there's no question of that like comedy is actively struggling right now like i'm at the biggest comedy club this country has to offer and i can feel that they're anxious over what comes next because people aren't going out people got very good at staying home and they they do consume an awful lot of your comedy, like I said, from YouTube and Netflix. So why bother going to the comedy club? And I find that really sad. I find that really sad and really worrying. I don't know what it's like there in New York, but that's certainly the sense here. It, it's a little similar here in New York. I would say the biggest like um, relation I could say is that there are a lot of people who appreciate comedy and go and like up to a point that's able to sustain the clubs but it's always the thing where if you want to grow business you have to get new people and interface with people who are unfamiliar so i think what i've been seeing especially for me as someone who also enjoys comedy and goes to frequent you know frequent clubs is that i think it's a bigger push of like convincing people who don't do that and i think uh people like me who are enthusiasts we even find it difficult it's like you're saying people got really good at staying home and i'd like to also point out um, in reference to what you were saying in Chappelle, just to like make sure we crystallize it in a very appropriate way, um, the thought that you had. My favorite comedian all of time uh, is Patrice O'Neill. I, I love like, oh. his stuff. Yeah. I was curious how you'd react to that. Of, of course, you're familiar. I love Patrice. I love yeah, Patrice. Yeah, and I actually got to see him before he died as well. Oh, did you? And yeah, I mean, like, again, he was a master. And, uh, I mean, in some ways, what Chappelle is doing is uh, owes a lot to Patrice. That's what I wanted to bring up, actually, because he um, before he died, I remember something used to hammer on and like different radio appearances is that a bad joke and a good joke come from the same place, the attempt. And he said it was always so important that for comedians and creatives to fight for that, where someone might say a bad joke, but. The, the world in which a good joke comes from is the same place. And you that's like, that's what's sacred in a way. Yeah. God, if people want to go back and listen to some Patrice O'Neill, you're, you really need to dig it out and just understand how fearless that man was. And he spent a lot of time over here, you know. I heard. Yeah. So he used to go around the clubs here and I just couldn't find, I, I just find that so fascinating because... 
it, it, it actually explains a lot because you become very, I guess you become a little battle hardened here. <laughs> some of these comedy clubs over here, certainly pre pandemic, some of them were pretty, uh, pretty rough. Uh, there were uh, you know, there was a, a sense of menace at some of them that uh, I've never experienced before, and he just I guess he just over that period of time stopped compromising, and uh, just did said what he wanted to say, and never bent or never uh, leaned leaned in to try and get them to like him. There's an example of a comic who didn't give two shits if people liked him or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, y- you've been very generous of your time. And before we go, I want to ask you one more thing. Kind of, um, you know, balancing the two worlds of podcasting and comedy. Because, you know, I'd love to know, how has it felt for you knowing that some people will know you for one medium over the other because for me it was a thing that i knew as a podcaster first and then i found out you were a stand-up and then i delved into that and i wonder have you found it an easy marriage between the two worlds or do they still feel quite separate well you know i always hated podcasts where a comedian starts a podcast and then crowbars in jokes left right and center uh doesn't really do the interview and kind of just you know uses it as a vehicle for them uh, so in so many ways, my podcast life began quite differently and separate from my stand-up life because I deliberately didn't put jokes in it and just tried to do the best interviews I could. And then if, if people knew that, they'd come to stand-up and they're like, oh, they'd go, oh, he's funny. <laughs> 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 and it was weird for them to see me be funny having listened to me for so long be serious um but like now i feel like the two are bec- are coming much closer together not that i'm now crowbarring in jokes but now i make all these other uh podcasts like irishman running abroad irishman in america and i'm much i'm much more at home with being silly and enjoying those conversations and you know just bringing my own life to those things uh, I guess it is like your work-life balance in that some of us are completely different people when we go to the office. Uh, many of your listeners will know what I mean by this. When you're, you know, when you're in your office and you're in your suit, sometimes you, know, you think people would be shocked to think of the thrash metal that I love going to on the weekends. But I'm just getting that, uh, what is it, that cognitive dissonance between the two. Uh, sides of my life is lessening uh, with every year um i don't give two shits how people find my stuff and i kind of don't care if they just like the podcast and never want to go to stand up and i'm getting better i think i probably went through a while of going why do people love my my podcast and they're not coming to my stand-up <laughs> like i still had people come to my stand-up but it was like podcast is so vast you know there's so many people listening and you're like jesus christ if 10 percent of them would buy tickets <laughs> I, I'd, be, I'd be so wealthy but it, it is uh i'm just getting much more at home with the idea that my stand-up is i think this is true ken that some people aren't the age they need to be for their stand-up to work right away 
Mm. And I, I really believe this, that there are certain comics who make no sense when they're younger. And it's only when they hit 40 that this now, this grouch <laughs> or this uh, curmudgeon is actually this, the planets have aligned in terms of their personality and appearance and their, their comic voice. I'm starting to feel that way. I'm really, I'm starting to feel that I put in 20 years of work for now, for this moment, that now I feel like this is fully me and this is the best version of my comedy. And look, what, what industry is like that in entertainment? Like, what, what entertainer do you know or band do you know that only got good 20 years in? I'm sure there's loads of them that got good 20 years in, but the fetishization of youth in the entertainment business means that they kind of get a window of five years, and if they don't make it, they're like put out to pasture. I I don't know. I don't know, man. I think I've lost the run of your question here, but uh, I'm very excited about the future anyway, and I'm just delighted that I'm seeing people come to my stand-up now after all these years and a lot of the time they've never listened to the podcast either wow. <laughs> they just come to the stand-up and they're like oh this and then they go oh there's a there's an accompanying podcast uh, network to go with this and that's kind of cool for them too because then they get to really know you yeah no you did a brilliant job answering that truly because i think Thanks, so mu- yeah of course i feel like so much of what you said uh people can relate to especially even people who aren't in entertainment. But what you said there at the tail end about being better as you get older, I mean, you're right. I can't think of any other field where that's the case or like where people would have um, an overt appreciation in that way. Mm, it's a funny one like that. Um, and I think I, I, I've probably heard that somewhere down through the years from some, someone else that, you know, stand-up actually improves with age like whiskey. Uh, and uh, that, uh, uh, sometimes when sometimes people don't make it like sometimes people quit before that time and that's really sad right uh, and I know there's been a kind of a cull of comedians as a result of the pandemic and again I don't know what that means we're in a very uncertain time for for comedy but uh, I think Sometimes podcasts are the things keeping a lot of comedians on life support, keeping them going. Yeah, it certainly feels that way. That's for sure. Well, I mean, it's definitely not it's not you in that case. So, you know, good on you for that. Joe, thank you so much. Truly. I'm so glad we got to finally do this. Yeah, Loads of fun, man. Really enjoyed it. Really great questions. Love talking to you. And I can't wait to meet up in Brooklyn for uh, a drink on a roof terrace or again, <laughs> ping pong. These are the visions I have of playing shooting hoops in Brooklyn playing ping pong on a roof terrace, <laughs> uh, drinking uh, non-alcoholic beer. Well, have you, have you ever been to Swift in Manhattan by any chance, the Irish pub? No. Oh, I'll definitely no. have to take you there. I have a strong feeling one or two of the guys from there are listening, so cheers to the oh, guys very good. Brilliant. <laughs> Thank you so much for checking this out. Be sure to subscribe to The New Exchange via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you stream podcasts. 
Until next time, thank you for listening. 